Hey there, welcome to Night School. It's been almost a week, maybe over a week, seven, eight days since the last episode. It's almost like we're becoming a normal podcast, but I reject that. This show will never be just, oh, check out on Sunday, on Sunday night, the new episode comes out. You know, never be that way. What is this, TV? No, we don't have a schedule. We don't have to obey a schedule. But, um, yeah, a friend of mine, my friend Alyssa, used the phrase to me last night, quarantini. And I like it, but I was a little disappointed in myself that I didn't think of that. You know, as Benito Mussolini Gasolini, the fuel for your Lamborghini, the guy who tells the girl in the bikini to bring him an apple teeny, I can't believe I didn't come up with quarantini. Quarantini. Now I can use it. I had to give proper credit. I didn't come up with it, but now I can use it. Now I can use quarantini selectively. Only selectively. But yeah, that's a good one. Uh, You know, and I'm glad somebody else used it. I'm glad that somebody else introduced me to that take. Quarantini. Because it's not like I'm above making quarantine jokes. It's not like I'm above that. Or as I like to call it, quarantine, like Clementine. But quarantini, I'm glad. I'm glad that that was just. It, it was eluding me. I knew there was some sort of, you know, every night's a school night, night school. I knew there was some sort of uh, word that was eluding me during the last six months, and that was it. I found she found it, but I, I have it now. Quarantini. Yeah, I just I was gone for about four days, three nights and four days, and it's the first time I've gone anywhere, both overnight or even just gone anywhere since December, really. I haven't left my city and barely left my neighborhood in quite a while. I took a friend to the doctor about a half hour away a few months ago, a couple months ago, but I certainly haven't gone three hours each way. And stayed overnight. I was visiting family on an island, going out on the boat. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. I have a lot of respect for my family. And uh, it was really great to see them. But, uh, you know, it does change your reality to do that. I mean, because I have been living a life where there is this sort of invisible wall around my neighborhood. Definitely my city, but especially my, you know, I'd say within a, a... two or three mile radius around my house. I've definitely kind of had this invisible wall, almost like an aquarium or more like a video game, an old video game where you go up to the boundary of the landscape and there's just this invisible wall that doesn't let you go any further. Not that I felt confined. I've actually enjoyed it. I've liked feeling like I'm in this sort of uh, contained environment. Because as I've said many times on here, you know, long before the quarantini, long before the time of quarantini, you know, I I think you can have an adventure in your own backyard, literally. You can literally have an adventure in your own backyard. You know, there's closets in your house, there's corners of your house you probably never even touched. I mean, I had that realization at my last house. I lived there for seven and a half years, 
and I think it was probably five years in, there was one night where I touched this wall. Just, I mean, it was a small house, tiny house. I touched this wall and I just had this thought where I was like, I've never touched that wall. I've lived here for however many years and I've just never put my hand flat against that wall. And it was just a weird little moment just to realize I've lived in this place but never touched that wall. So even that can be an adventure. Just walking around your house touching things. But no, you know, you know, in, in, a, in a larger sense, just, you know, you can... You can get everything you need out of just your immediate environment. You don't have to be bored. It's nice to break. It's nice to have the option. You know, that's the thing is it's nice to have the option. I mean, you don't want to be in a zoo. You don't want to be in a jail where you don't have a choice. You can't go anywhere. And you, you I mean, you really can't go anywhere. Nobody's going to let you. Somebody else has power over you. You know, you don't want to be in that situation but I think there's something to, you know, having to, to voluntarily exploring a contained environment. But anyway, you know, getting out of town, it was really good. It was, and then coming back to town, it was nice because that does shift your perspective. Coming back to town, coming back to my house, being out there, especially being out on a boat. You know, I don't go out on boats a lot. My family has a, my uncle has a boat and we, we picked up crab. We, it was just down-home paganism, you know, it's it's what I would call down-home paganism, which is just living off the earth, just being there, you know, no containment there, when you're on the water, that's always, I mean, I have to remind, I had to remind myself when I was out there, I was just like, oh yeah, this is a completely different, uh, just a, just a completely different form of mobility, just riding out on water. But yeah, anyway, uh, thinking a little bit about manifestation, which is a word I don't like to use. I like the word, but I don't like to use it. How's that for you? I like the word, I don't like to use it, because it's another word that's developed a certain connotation, and I don't really know any words that haven't. You know, I don't know any words that don't have a certain connotation, words that a certain type of person uses that... If they don't turn me off, it turns someone else off. But manifestation is one of those. And what's interesting about that word is it's kind of come to mean, at least in people's minds, it's come to mean, you know, almost creating something out of thin air. Like I thought it and I, I made it happen. I thought it and I made it happen. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. I mean, people have manifested their own definitions of manifestation. But, uh, you know, I don't think that that definition is entirely wrong. But if you just look up the definition of manifestation and think about the idea of it, and a large part of it is, is becoming aware of something that is already there. It is observing something in, in many ways, noticing I think noticing is my word of the day. So it's not that you yourself created this thing out of thin air simply by thinking it, but by thinking about it, you allowed yourself to notice it. By recognizing it. 
you know, and you might not have recognized it if you hadn't thought about it before. I mean, it happens when you learn something new, you start to notice that in things. And the, and it's it's very similar to that idea of synchronicity that I like to say, where you know you're getting glimpses of this thing, but those glimpses aren't separate things. You're getting a each time you experience synchronicity, you're getting a glimpse of the same thing. And just because you're not seeing it during the interim, doesn't mean it's not there, and it also doesn't mean it's not the same thing. And of course, there's a level of abstraction to all this. Because I mean, the idea, I think one of the definitions of manifestation, not that I need to rely on those, but still, uh, you know, one of the definitions of manifestation is that it's something abstract becoming real. And abstract because you are thinking of it before you're seeing it. And uh, with that, though, with that idea, though, of noticing you know because of course before you notice it it doesn't seem real it doesn't seem to be a part of your reality and you have to notice it for it to become part of your reality but that doesn't mean it's not already there and uh i don't know when that happens it can feel like you yourself made it happen and I don't really want to get into, you know, whether noticing something, you know, it, it gets into observer theory where you yourself seeing something changes it or it even reacts because it knows it's being watched. I mean, there's I mean, there's people who believe that staring at an inanimate object changes it in some way, that that object might change in response to simply you gazing at it. And some people might think that sounds crazy. I don't. I don't think it's crazy to think about that. I don't think it's crazy to think that even an inanimate object is affected in some way by you simply looking at it. Because I think most people at some point in their lives have had that experience where they look at something and then it falls. And there was no real reason for it to fall. It wasn't teetering on the edge. But you look at something and it, you know, let's just say it's a cup. Say it's a vase. Let's go with a vase. Although this, that example's never happened to me. I've never stared at a vase and it's just fallen off a shelf or anything like that. But let's just say something like that. You know, I think we've had that sort of experience where something seems to almost respond in some way to our attention. And it almost feels like we ourselves are responsible And I don't know what to say about that. You know, while I do, I mean, there's, there's even been some, there's evidence that there is something to observer theory. Because you think about how powerful your attention is, how powerful your awareness is, and to think that focusing on something wouldn't have some impact on that thing. To me, that idea is more out there than believing it has some impact. Not some sort of psychic impact where it's like you can look at something and control it. Not that I can completely reject that idea, but it's not something I even think about. Not something I try to do. I watched a video of spoon bending a month or two ago. 
you know, I don't know. To me, that's just... Do I need to do I need to be bending spoons with my mind? Do I need to be bending spoons with my mind? I don't I don't think I do. I don't think I need to worry about bending spoons. It's amazing what I can do already. It's amazing what I can put my mind to already without needing to just bend spoons, without needing to ruin a, a good spoon. But with manifestation, you know, it's not that, in my opinion. It's not just like it's not just, I don't think of manifestation in purely psychic terms. And, you know, when I was up north, I was talking to my little sister. She's seven years younger, and she's a very positive person. And it's just, it's amazing to see how she's come about. You know, she's seven years younger than I am. And I, I do feel a certain pride for her outlook on life. You know, I, I'm proud of the outlook that she has. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just glad that she is the person she is. But she was we were talking a little bit about this kind of general idea, just a brief conversation. But uh, I mentioned kind of this, you know, I was saying how I was telling her how, you know, a big part of it is noticing because she was saying, you know, she was talking about kind of, you know, positive ideation and, you know, manifestation. And I just said in response, you know, I was like, yeah, a lot of it's noticing. Because if you already have that in your head, you will notice it when it happens. Because that's always been an issue for me is that, you know, I would say that I have something like a sixth sense. It could be the 200th sense. could be the first sense. I don't know what it is, but I feel like I have something of a sixth sense where I can predict certain things. I think most people can if they allow themselves. I think this is something that human beings have within us. And I think there's a huge problem with people acting like they are special because they have this sense. Some people, again, notice that about themselves. It's not that some person has something that nobody else has. It's that certain people just are more aware of it. And it doesn't necessarily even serve you. I mean, it can easily be a distraction. I mean, I think some people who have completely lost their minds, people who would be diagnosably mentally ill, they've noticed it a little too much, maybe. I think you, you're not mentally ill. You've just noticed it. You've just noticed this thing a little too much. I think that can happen. You can get consumed by your awareness of things, especially if other people aren't aware of them. But I know when I was younger, you know, I, I, had, I was great at predicting horrible things. I was great at predicting negative outcomes. Oh, I, I bet this is going to happen, and sure enough, it happens. Oh, uh, I bet this person is going to do this thing that pisses me off. Sure enough, they do it. Did I create that? Did I force that person to do something that would piss me off? Did I somehow control that event outside of me that I felt was that I felt made the word the world worse, the word worse? No, did, did I make the world worse by thinking about the possibility that this event could happen or that this person would do this? No, I don't think so. I don't think that I made that happen. I don't think I forced it. I don't think that there was a magic trick where 
this would have never happened if I hadn't thought of it. But I put myself in a position to notice it. And maybe this sixth sense, this 102nd sense, whatever, whatever, I don't know how to order it. I might have, there might be a lot more senses than five, six, you know. But was it this sense that, you know, did I have some sort of sense? You know, was there something that defies our normal sense of reality that allowed me to predict? to make some sort of uh, humble prophecy. Maybe, you know, I, I do think there is something to that. Again, I think some people are more in tune with that, more aware of that ability. Not that you can force it, not that you can try. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe there's something to it. But, you know, I don't think I created that. But I did put myself in a position to notice it. And that is what I'm getting at here, where, you know, if you're expecting a negative outcome, if you've never conceived of it before it happens, you might very well not notice it. It might not even be a possibility in your mind. And if it's not a possibility in your mind, when it happens, you might not even be able to comprehend it. But if you've already considered that possibility, especially if you've ruminated on it, if you've spent time with that thought that you had, when you see it happen, absolutely you're going to notice it. And if you're already predisposed towards cynicism and skepticism, you will be further cemented in that way of thinking. Because you'll think, oh boy, oh boy, everything's happening just the way I thought. Just the way I thought. You know, it's, it's very easy to get into that mode. And it's self-defeating. Because you end up thinking that all of these things are constantly happening. And it, they happen in a way that is personally upsetting to you. As if these things are personal. But it's difficult to be aware of things and not personalize them in some way. Especially if they relate to something you are interested in, someone you know. I mean, we have such little attention that we can give at any moment. So the idea of paying attention to something and something happening in relation to that that you don't like is of course going to seem personal. Because you are devoting your limited amount of attention to it. It's why people get so upset when they hate a movie or don't like a, a certain... They're forced to listen to music that they don't like. Someone makes a bad joke. The reason why that's so upsetting is because you in that moment are either voluntarily or forced to in some cases. I mean, sometimes you're forced to to listen to this thing or pay attention to this thing and knowing that your limited amount of attention, that... that attention span that you have right now in this moment is being wasted or abused. My attention span is being abused by horrible music. It's hard not to personalize that because it's like this is my greatest resource, my ability to pay attention, my awareness. It's my greatest resource. Everything I like comes from this. Everything I want 
comes from this sense of awareness that I have. And the fact that I'm being subjected, the fact that I'm being subjected to it, to something I don't like, is upsetting. It's hard not to personalize that. And even when it becomes more abstract, when you're simply noticing things happen outside of you, it might not even have anything to do with you and your current cone of vision right now. It might just be something that you hear about. And you can start seeking that stuff out, too. If your identity is somehow based on this cynicism, this negativity, you seek things out that confirm that and reinforce that. You know, it's something that happens to curmudgeons, and a lot of it can happen without you ever being aware. But there are people who deliberately do it. There are people who deliberately, they know they're even doing it. They know that they are reinforcing some sort of cynical, negative, skeptical worldview. But there are many more people, I believe, who don't realize they're doing it. Or by the time they realize it, it's pretty late. I'm not going to say too late because I don't think it's ever too late. But I think it's pretty late. And now that's them. Now their identity is based around that. So for me, that was you know my lesson is realizing that, oh yeah, you know I notice these negative outcomes because I already have them in my brain. And I'm, you know, almost white knuckling, I have a white knuckle grip just waiting for those. I'm, I'm, I'm just, and why? What am I going to do? It's going to confirm something. You know, and that's manifestation. Noticing that thing that very well might happen anyway. You're not some great prophet. You're just intuitively picking up on something that is happening or will will happen and uh you know you can easily focus on that but the it, the same idea applies to good things same thing applies to good things you know it's true though you you can start to notice good things as they happen but you have to have those in your mind. And of course, there are opportunities. There are some, you, you can have experiences with manifestation where it does feel like you willed it to happen. But part of that is you have it in your mind and you are now taking opportunities as they come that will reinforce that. You know, it's, it's not just that everything happens independent of you and you have no control. You know, you think about people who, Achieve their dreams. I got my dream job. I got my dream job. You know, you think about someone like that who had some sort of ideal in mind. And they worked toward it. Or they, when opportunities presented themselves, they committed themselves in such a way that those opportunities would be fruitful. But there's an element, you know, there is an element of intuition. There is something almost supernatural to that. And part of that is, you know, when you have those experiences where something feels like it's meant to be in the positive sense, you know, it can feel like you're riding a wave. Like if you've ever had a job interview 
or even or gone on a date. Same thing, right? Same thing, right? Uh, if you've ever done that, you know you. Uh, if it if you if you get a good sense that this is the right thing or it's something you want, it, you can feel that you're going with the grain. You're like riding this wave, and uh, you don't want to listen to any cynicism. Because sometimes people will offer that to you. Oh, well, here's the downsides. Are you feeling good about this? Well, here's the downside. You know, people will do that. And it's not even that you're afraid in those situations of hearing the downside. It's that it, it feels absurd. When, and it might even be real a, a real thing. You know, it might even be real. It might be something like, oh, you think that's your dream job, huh? Well, listen, uh, they, uh, they got bad benefits. I don't know. I can't come up with a good example. Oh, oh, you think that's your dream girl, huh? Well, she's been divorced twice. You know, it might be something like that. But when you hear that, when you hear somebody giving you this dose of reality, it's not that you're rejecting it because you're in some sort of, I mean, there's sometimes, if you, if you know anybody who's prone to real manic states, and I think we all dip into manic states. Like, I'm not manic depressive or bipolar, but I certainly now and again get into a manic state. And usually it's where I, I have the most ideas, you know, firing off. I feel very creative. But if you've ever known somebody who gets into a real, I would say, diagnosable manic state, they, well, first of all, I mean, it's very, even though they're often in a positive mindset in a certain way where they're wanting to create, they're wanting to do things, they're being very proactive. It's very uncomfortable because it doesn't feel real. Like you see it as an unreal state and you also don't want to get in their way. It's not your business to knock them out of that state and they might very well do some great things while they're in it. But one thing you'll notice is that you can't really have a conversation with them. They're not really listening. It's almost like they're they're, they're somewhere else. But when you're riding that wave, when you feel like you're manifesting something good that you want in your life, it's not unlike a manic state in the sense that other people trying to give you a dose of reality or give you some sort of even-keeled advice just kind of bounces off of you. And not because you reject it. It just feels absurd. It feels absurd to hear this warning. Or this downside to a, to a potential outcome. Uh, and a big part of that, though, is just staying on that wave. Continuing to go with the grain. Because there are so many options for getting out of it. There, there, you have so many opportunities to go against the grain at any given time. But when you're going with that grain, and I can't think of a better phrase than that. It's an obvious one. Everyone knows what that means, going with the grain, riding the wave. But when you're with that, you know, it seems so obvious, you know, like the, the, uh, it just seems so intuitive. You're just, you can feel it and you can feel the things that, that are getting in your way. And I don't know, I don't want to go on too much more about this, but it's just an interesting thing where things that, would influence you to start going against the grain or to jump off the wave 
to halt. Those things just feel absurd. It's it, it feels like somebody telling you, uh, oh, uh, why don't you uh, put your e- oh you're eating eggs on a plate, huh? Oh, you're eating scrambled eggs on a plate. Why don't you uh, put them in a cup? You know what you should do? You should put those eggs in a cup and eat them out of the cup. You should drink those scrambled eggs out of a cup. It's almost like that sort of feeling. It's just like, why would I do that? That's kind of how it feels when you're in one of those moments. And then when it happens, when something that you desire happens, it's not necessarily that you created it. It's that you didn't do anything to obstruct it, for one. And then you were in a position to notice it when it happened. And it's very easy to think that you notice everything that you need to notice at any given time or that you notice everything that's happening at a given time. And you think about our world today with the amount of information we receive, and this is what makes politics so insane and difficult. Because the average person, even somebody who isn't on that big of a high horse, everybody's on a little bit of a high horse, a little bit of a high horse, everybody's on some kind of high horse, but... You know, the higher up you feel that you are on this horse, you believe that you see everything. And the things that somebody else points out are somehow distorted. They're somehow not real. And it's very difficult if you pay attention to a variety of sources. And I think politics are the best example. Where if you, if you make an effort to listen to as many people as possible, or as many perspectives as possible, you'll get a feel for you know, what, is, what is being said or done in good faith. And uh, that doesn't mean you're noticing everything. But if you make an effort to notice as many things as you can... In the news, in editorials, whatever it is, whatever the sources are, if you make an effort to notice as much as possible, you know, you'll get a feel for who is doing something in good faith, who has an agenda, which everybody has in some way, but you'll get a feel for it. But if you talk to somebody else and you're like, oh, did you hear that this happened or that this is going on? Someone will say, where'd you hear that? Where'd you hear that? I didn't hear that. Or if they did hear it, they heard it filtered through a source that they already agree with who is rejecting that other thing because it doesn't align with whatever their goal is, whatever that is, whatever their goal is, whatever that, you know, whatever that is. But people have this idea that they've noticed everything that they need to know. And noticing something else outside of that is somehow a hallucination. And this is very true right now. Very, very true. In large part because of the amount of information that we are processing. And not just information. Uh, I mean, not just information that, that concerns our immediate lives, but it's, it's a, such a heavy dose of information that goes way beyond our little environment. Places that people will never see or touch, people they will never know. The amount of time we spend thinking about that. The amount of time we spend thinking about the world. 
and all of the infinite number of events going on at any given time. The idea of of believing that you can rationally process all of that and come up with some kind of consistent worldview based on all of the different sets of circumstances, different people, to believe that you can actually turn that into some sort of one-size-fits-all narrative is insane. As, as is the idea that somebody else noticing something that is not in your field of vision makes them insane. But there's no way to process the amount of information we are receiving. There's just no way to do it, which is why people like to apply some sort of narrative structure to it. The idea of dealing with the absolute chaos without that sort of tunnel, without trafficking it through some sort of tunnel just doesn't work with people. But I believe the, al- the alternative option is much healthier, which is not trying to take it all, not trying to take all of the information in, getting an understanding of what information is actually relevant to you. And focusing on noticing what's going on within that. And not believing that because you yourself or your trusted sources haven't noticed something, that it's not worth noticing or not even being authentically noticed by people outside of you and your sources. That's a problem. A huge, huge problem. But again, it comes back to noticing, manifesting. And you can see where two different people can look at the same event, especially if it's politically or socially charged, and see two entirely different things. And it's not that those two different people manifested that event. It's that their previous idea, whatever they were thinking about before, led to them noticing certain aspects of that event. And in that, they manifested it. So you can see where manifestation isn't necessarily some form of creation, but it's what you were aware of prior to noticing and how being aware of that, of thinking a certain way, shaped the way that you noticed the event. But, uh, you know, I I don't know. Manifestation is a word that I wish I could find a synonym for. I wish I could find a synonym for everything. But some words you just can't escape. Most words. I would like to escape all words. I'd like to escape all words. Is there a synonym I can use? You can end up spending so much time trying to find a synonym for something that you never end up focusing on the idea itself. It's very easy for me to do that. I'll try to find such a roundabout way to say something, and in doing that, focus on the word itself, because I don't like how that word is usually used by a certain type of person. Manifestation. You think about this sort of new age self-help approach, which is me. That might as well be me. I'm not above that. 
but you you think about the way that manifestation is used in these sort of positive ideation, self-help, the secret. You think about that. Not that any of that stuff is wrong. I don't believe it is wrong at all. But I just don't like the sort of culture attached to it, the aesthetic. For me, I have such a visceral reaction to culture and aesthetics that I can reject a word that is very useful. I can reject an idea that is very useful to me, that is very real to me. Because if it's, if it's real, it's useful. And if it's useful, it's real. But I can reject something that is, can be used by me and help me understand the world simply because I am so turned off by the cultural, you know, just, just the cultural connotation that I have, you know, with that thing. And it's important not to do that. It's important for it's important for me to not let my own visceral reaction to these superficial elements get in the way of discussing an idea. And I'm not going to invent a new word that replaces manifestation. I'm not going to invent a new word that replaces selfie. I'm certainly not going to find a new word that replaces love. You know, so why not just use it? I I always need to remind myself of that. But, um, But yeah, I don't know that I have too much more to say about manifestation here today other than the fact that I believe manifestation isn't just... I mean, I'm not saying you don't create things. Because I do have a belief in some sort of... I I do believe that our minds can create. I do believe that focusing on certain thoughts, and not too hard. Because, I mean, when I think about manifestation, I think one of the things that turns me off from that word and the way it is... Just a sec, there's this landline with robocalls. One sec. Yeah, I manifested that call. It wasn't a robot. It was not a robot, but it was not a person. I mean, it might as well have been. It was a person, a human being programmed to sell me something. But with manifestation, uh, let me see if I can remember. Let me see if I can uh, remember where I was there. You know, it's not that I don't believe we can't create things, and I believe we do. And I think you have to have your own understanding of how that works. As far as, you know, oh, I, I thought about this thing and it happened. Or I thought about this thing and it came to be. Because there's often a certain amount of work. I mean, you think about it, if you've ever written music, if you've ever drawn a drawing, if you've done something creative, especially when it doesn't feel like you thought about it. When it feels like it just came. When it just happened. Which often comes from what people call a flow state. But when that happens, and you don't feel this responsibility, it's a weird thing where if you create something that comes from that place where it just seems to have happened, on one hand, you don't have the, your, your ego has a different relationship to it because you don't remember it really. You don't remember putting the hours in. You don't remember racking your brain. You don't remember trying to come up with something cool. You don't, and and because of that, your ego is a little detached from it, because you think, oh, you know, uh, I don't really feel that I made this. Your sense of I made this 
is very different. You know you made it, but you don't feel entirely responsible. You do feel like something was channeled through you. It's where people say they feel like a vessel. And so you have that side of it where your ego is detached from it. But then after the fact, you look at it and you're like, I made that. And because I didn't think about it, it ended up being kind of different and maybe better in some way than what I would have done if I sat there and forced it. And so your ego loves that. (laughs) You know, on one hand, your ego was detached from the process, which is probably why it came out so well and intuitively and, and, you know, all of that. But then after the fact, it's probably better than the things you normally like. In the same way that, like, I think drawing is a great example where, you know, you look at somebody else's drawing and you don't see the mistakes because it came from somebody else. Whereas, you know, you look at your own drawing and no matter how good it is, no matter how proud of it you are, you know exactly the spots on that drawing where you were tired, lazy, where you were covering up a mistake. You just see it because you made it. But when you have this sort of detached, you know, flow state creation, you don't see those as much and they might not even exist because you were just on autopilot. Uh, So you might not see those aspects of it if they exist at all. They might not be there because you weren't sitting there obsessing over it. It just happened. And it is like somebody else made it. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at, where you can look at somebody else's work and even if something looks a little bit rough, like it could be a mistake, you almost give it the benefit of the doubt. I have a tendency to do that when I listen to music. Sometimes I'll be listening to guitar or something like that, and there will be a moment where there's like, say, pick noise. You know, you can hear the pick hitting the strings. And when I play guitar, I mean, that's extremely undesirable. And I'm not great. I'm not very good at guitar. So the fact that I can hear that makes me not, I mean, it makes me not even want to do it. If I can hear string noise or, you know, like the pick hitting the strings through the distortion or anything like that, I don't even want to do it if I can hear that. But if I hear that in somebody else's work, I kind of think, oh, you know, it's not a problem. They, they meant to do it. They were aware of it. And you might not even notice it is the thing. It again comes back to noticing, where you might not even notice this thing that would completely dominate your own thoughts if you're looking at your own work or if you're listening to your own work. But when you're hearing it come from somebody else, it somehow seems to be part of the organic whole of it. And it's not a problem. And you might even like it. You might even like it because you're just like, oh, well, this is, uh," it might not even sound like pick noise to you. It might sound like something deliberate, you know, you don't know, but it just seems to be part of that thing that you are enjoying or appreciating, which is interesting. It's just interesting how that detachment does that. And I think that happens with your own work when you do create something just through pure intuition and you almost don't even remember the process because that's happened to me many times where not as often as I would like, but it's happened to me many times where something just happens. It feels like it manifests And I don't really remember the process because I was so in it while it was happening. And it's impossible to be in that state all the time. And maybe only very, very special people can do that. I mean, to be honest, it's happened on this show where I feel that the best episodes I've ever done, I have no memory of sitting there talking or thinking. I hit record and the next thing I know, I'm hitting stop. 
And I do see this show as a creative exercise in many ways. It's, a, it's engaging my brain in a creative way. It is a performance of some kind. But I do find that the best episodes of this show are the ones where I just go. And I don't end up remembering it. But of course, after the fact, your ego kicks in and is like, I made this thing that I like. And that's okay. It's good to like your work. It's good. I don't like the stereotype, whatever it is, of the self-hating artist. I mean, there's plenty of other reasons to hate yourself. You shouldn't hate your work. You know, and if you do, that's okay. But the the idea of the artist who burns his own work or slashes it up, uh, I always think about the dwarf, Hervé Villachez. Growing up, my friend and I were obsessed with him. You know, he's in The Man with the Golden Gun, James Bond. Of course, he's most well-known as Tattoo from Fantasy Island. But Hervé, we used to call him Hervey. My friend and I, we were in elementary school, and we called him Hervey Villachez. Hervey Villachez. <laughs> we called him Hervey Villachez. I think his name is Hervé Villachez. I don't know how to say it. I don't, you know, I took two years of French, but I don't know how to speak French. I don't know how to pronounce it. But anyway, Hervé was a very talented painter when he was a kid. I saw a documentary on him that I actually taped. There was a documentary about Hervé that I actually recorded onto a VHS tape when I was a kid, and I used to watch it, watched it several, many times probably. Fewer than 10, maybe five, I don't know. But there's a part in it where they're talking to his brother, and his brother's talking about how talented Hervé was at painting as a kid, and how one time, though, he saw Hervé painting, and Hervé did a self-portrait, and then I think splashed red paint on it, and was like started slashing at it, yelling, I hate you, I hate you, you know, it was, you know, this self-hatred, and I'm not saying that's, you know, I'm not saying that's bullshit, while, while, while certain people do do that falsely, of course there are people, and you think about Hervé, he's a dwarf, he's an alcoholic dwarf, you know, he's got plenty of problems, plenty of potential problems at the very least, and, you know, he probably did hate himself, probably did, and I'm not saying him slashing his own painting and throwing red paint on it or anything like that is false. I mean, coming from him, there's probably a, probably felt that. He's probably drinking a lot of wine, you know, who knows. But, you know, because we know about that, because we know about that self-hating artist archetype, it's very easy to think that you need to act that out yourself. Oh, Kirk, Kirk of Corbrain. Kirk of Corbrain. Heroin and suicide. I've got to somehow honor the self-hating artist archetype. Not that anybody's brain actually goes there. But there's this idea that if you're not that, if you're not a self-destructive artist, if you don't hate your own art, you're not a real artist. You're not a real artist if you don't hate what you do. You know, there's that idea. And please feel free to hate what you do. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. Feel free to hate everything you do if that's what you really want to do. But I'm here to let you know that you don't have to do that. You can be proud. And I guess the reason I'm talking about this is because I'm talking about those moments where you create something and it feels like you manifested it. It feels like it happened outside of you and then after the fact, you notice it. After the fact, you're like, oh, 
I now have this completed image that the process was much smoother than anything else I do. And the end result is a lot more, it's easier for me to appreciate it. It doesn't look like something that I overthought. Which itself is a major success, a coup. I would call that a coup. Anytime I do anything in life and I look back at it and say, hey, there's a moment where I didn't overthink it. I didn't overwork it. That is a coup against my natural tendencies. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think you should be willing to appreciate it. Let, give your ego a little relief. I mean, your ego isn't cancer. I mean, I think that's a problem, too, is people hear ego and they think, they think of ego purely as this malignant alien life form. That ego is like some form of cancer that, you know, attaches itself to you and infects you and destroys you. And while it can do exactly that, our egos aren't a part of us just to bring us down or just to, they're not there purely to destroy us. They're not there just to malign our existence, you know, and uh, I think your ego does serve a very valuable function if you have a healthy relationship to it. And having a healthy relationship to your ego does involve patting yourself on the back a little bit. It does involve appreciating what you do, especially when that thing you did didn't seem to come from your ego. So it's like, I did this thing that didn't seem to come from my ego, but it made my ego happy after the fact. That seems healthy to me. But you don't want to get attached to it either. And I guess that's the other side of that is when you do feel that you manifested something, your ego might be happy, but your ego also doesn't feel responsible for it. At least it shouldn't. So that's an interesting thing. That's always interesting. But um, yeah, I'm reading, I'm still reading Napoleon Hill, Outwitting the Devil, which I mentioned before. A great book, by the way. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, given, you know, he was, he wrote it in the 1930s and his family didn't allow it to be published. His wife didn't allow it to be published. Uh, the guy who took over the Napoleon Hill Foundation long after Napoleon Hill died, his wife wouldn't let it be published. So not only did Napoleon Hill's wife not allow the book to be published, the random guy who took over, I think it was his nephew, I think Napoleon Hill's nephew took over the Napoleon Hill Foundation that managed his estate and his works. But even his wife didn't allow it. So there's something about outwitting the devil where these guys' wives did not want you to read it. And supposedly the reason was is because it's a conversation with the devil. And it's funny saying that because reading it, I don't feel like I'm reading, it's a Q&A, it's an interview with the devil, but reading it, I don't feel that it's Napoleon Hill talking to himself. I mean, he was a firm believer in some form of manifestation. Uh, I would say he might have been, you know, far more influential in that regard than people even realize today when it comes to channeling manifestation into practical outcomes. You know, he wrote Think and Get Rich, Think and, think and Grow Rich. I think it's Think and Grow, not Think and Get. Growing is better than getting. 
Think and Grow Rich. But he wrote that, which was, you know, applied some of these principles to business, which is something I'm not interested in. While I like success, while I like security, I'm not somebody who's like, I want to be the CEO of a big company. You know, I'm, that's just not in my mind. I can't do that in and feel it. But, you know, he did, I think, channel a lot of these ideas, these spiritual ideas, these ideas that we can barely comprehend, but we can feel them when they take place. We can understand that process through living it, through noticing it. You know, we can experience it that way. But Outwitting the Devil, I highly recommend it. I don't think you need to have read Think and Grow Rich, but Outwitting the Devil, you know, I don't feel that it's Napoleon Hill pretending to be the devil. I do feel that he channeled something. I don't know that he channeled the devil himself, but there's fumes. That's how I'd put it. There's, there are fumes of the devil in Napoleon Hill pretending to be the devil. There is certainly a great understanding of the way our minds work, the way our spirits work. And uh, there's a little part here, though, where they talk about sin. The devil talks about sin, which you don't normally hear about. Normally you hear sin, you hear uh, warnings about sin come from the other side of the fence. You hear God and the angels and, you know, all of the good people, the good entities talk about avoiding sin. But hearing the devil talk about sin is, is a slightly different, gives you a little different perspective but this is the devil answering a question from Napoleon Hill, and he says, Sin is anything one does or thinks which causes one to be unhappy. Human beings who are in sound physical and spiritual health should be at peace with themselves and always happy. Any form of mental or physical misery indicates the presence of sin. And I believe that. that uh, I believe that. I feel that. And that's difficult because you say, oh, well, I, I have some sort of ailment. I have a physical ailment. I have a, I'm depressed. Does that mean I'm sinning? You very well might. And you might not even have known that you were sinning. You might not have even known because you didn't notice it. You didn't realize what you were manifesting. Because I think sin is a very easy way of understanding negative manifestation. You're doing something that is going to have an undesirable outcome. And that will make you unhappy. And that's what he says, just point blank. Sin is anything one does or thinks which causes one to be unhappy. Because the reverse of that idea is that there are people who are going through extreme hardship, whose, whose lives objectively suck, but they remain happy. They remain faithful. And, of course, Napoleon Hill talks a lot about, you know, faith as the inverse of fear, which makes sense when you think about what faith is. And something they talk about earlier in the book that I really liked was how don't just pray out of fear. Don't pray because you want some sort of desirable outcome and you are desperate for it to happen. Because when we think about prayer, we often think about it in that context. We think about someone you love is in the hospital and you go and you pray for them to recover. Or you're in a bad financial situation and you pray 
to fall into money or to get a good job, to somehow get out of your dire circumstances. And it doesn't say to not do that. When they talk about that, when they talk about the idea of prayer, it doesn't say to not do that, but it says pray even when there's good things going on in your life. Pray even when everything is perfect. And by maintaining that habit of prayer, no matter the circumstances, that prayer is going to be much more effective because when you pray while things are good, you're actually reinforcing that. You are, you are reinforcing the circumstances that you have at that very moment. And you are planning in your mind the strength to manifest those circumstances. I don't know that I'm explaining it quite as well as it was explained earlier in the book, and I don't have that earmarked to read it. But it was basically saying, don't pray out of fear, pray out of faith. And you don't have to think of it in terms of prayer. When I say prayer, I could mean meditation. I could mean anything that you deliberately roll through your brain in an attempt to stabilize yourself, in an attempt to reinforce something that is desirable to you in some way, and not desirable in the pleasure sense, but something that is truly desirable for you when it comes to your own greater well-being, the well-being of the people you love, the well-being of the world around you, but to not only do that when you're feeling anxious or fearful. Because you think about meditation, and something that leads many people to meditation is anxiety and fear, dread. They want to reach some point of neutrality. Even if you're not one of these follow-your-bliss Western Buddhists who, you know, oh, I, I meditate to feel good. You know, even if you're just looking for neutrality, even if you're looking for just a glimpse of the Dharma with no emotional attachment, you know, a lot of people are led to that because they want to overcome some sort of negative disposition in their life. They meditate to manage that better. But I think, I think that while that can get you going, I don't think you should attach that idea to something like meditation. I don't think that meditation should simply be an attempt to avert anxiety, fear, dread, cynicism. While that is the bonus, and that might be what led you on that path, you should meditate to cultivate the opposite of that as well. And I don't know that you even have to think that, but you should have that somewhere inside of you. You should have something inside of you, some kind of faith. And it's why I don't relate to secular meditation. There's these people like Sam Harris, who I have no problem with. I find him kind of boring. I got no problem with him, but I, uh, I, I consider him kind of boring, you know. But really, like, I think he's a good guy who's doing good work. I find him a little bit boring, but he's very into this. He teaches secular meditation and has an app, and I've never listened to it, so I don't know what it's actually like. I did see a video of him guiding people on a meditation, and I thought it was good. You know, I thought what he was doing was good, but he makes it, he's an atheist, an outspoken atheist, and he makes it a point that this is a secular exercise, and you, the neurons of your brain are doing this. You, you get the neurons on your brain, and the, do, the, the neurons in your brain are visualizing light, you know, whatever it is he says. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't relate to that. It's not that I reject it, and I think it's great that people are doing that, 
on in terms that they can understand and feel okay doing, but I just don't, through my own life experience, my own gnosis, I don't relate to secular meditation because there is such an element of faith to it for me. And I do it not out of fear, not, not because of anxiety, not because of negative thoughts, although those are a part of it. Those helped lead me to a point in my life where I felt the need to adopt a meditation practice. But it's very much an act of faith, and that's why I do it daily. That's why I do it every morning, because this is an act of devotion. And what's that an act of devotion to? Is it simply the deity or deities? Is it God? Well, it's that too, but it's also some sort of, it's reinforcing, I don't know, it's, it's weird because you go into it with faith, with the goal of reinforcing your faith, and it's your faith that will guide you through any number of different situations, and it's through faith that you will be able to respond to adversity and difficult circumstances with some sort of grace. Not to say that I have that grace, but it's one of the reasons why I meditate, is because it brings about a greater grace. And I've been through situations since meditating where that manifested. I think the greatest example is, you know, as I talk about, like when my mom passed away last December, and if I didn't have that faith, and if I didn't have a practice that reinforced that faith... I don't think I would have handled it nearly as well as I did in the moment and then now, you know, ten and a half months later. I don't think that I would have handled it nearly as well. I don't think I would have been able to even contextualize it in a productive way, in a constructive way, if I didn't have this faith going into that situation and also continue to reinforce that faith through that process. And so when they talk in in this book about prayer and not simply praying when you're desperate and fearful, but praying when things are good too, that is what will reinforce your faith. It's not asking for something necessarily, but it's creating a disposition for yourself that will allow you to achieve that no matter what is happening. You will not be unhappy. And as he said, as I quoted a minute ago, sin is anything one does or thinks which causes one to be unhappy. And I think about periods of my life where I was manifesting unhappiness. In large part, that's because I had some sort of uh, preconceived idea of what was going to happen. I had some. I had preloaded myself with this idea of negative circumstances, and as a result, I was noticing those things all the time. I was, my interests were negative. The things I saw out in the world were negative. I was, I'd set myself up to notice negative things. And, and I have to explain too, those weren't necessarily things that are obviously negative. They're not necessarily things that are, that fit under the brand of negativity, like mean people, criminals, horror, death. You know, it wasn't even things like that necessarily because things that shouldn't have been negative were negative. 
I've used the example on here before. If I used to walk by playgrounds and find them depressing, not because I, I mean, I had a wonderful childhood, so there wasn't some sort of like, ooh, something bad. I, I, there was no Psych 101 bullshit of like, oh, playgrounds make me sad because my own childhood sucked and something bad happened at a playground. There was nothing like that to it. There was just something about the fleeting, you know, just seeing kids playing on a playground with their moms watching them made me kind of sad. And I'm not even going to break down why that was. It's just a simple fact because I didn't even really know why it was. I would just see a playground, which you think it's kids playing, being happy with their wonderful little moms watching them. What is bad about that? Yet I would walk by and get a little bit, not, de- not, I wouldn't cry, but I would just think, oh, that's kind of depressing. That's a bummer. What a malignant thought that is, you know, what a, what a sick thought that is. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, where it didn't really matter what it was. It's not like something had to be a, you know, it's not like something had to be obviously horrific for me to notice it and say, oh, that reinforces my negative outlook. It's that things that weren't objectively dark had a cloud over them. And it's because I was noticing them, and not just noticing them, but noticing them in a certain way. So again, it, it all comes back to noticing. You preload your brain, and then you notice things based on whatever it was you loaded in there. And it's, of course, just a cycle. It's self-perpetuating. And you do have to develop something to break that. And, you know, so often people are unwilling to look at their own unhappiness. They're just unable to look at their own unhappiness as a product of manifestation. Because you have to take responsibility for that. And it's funny how simple that responsibility actually is. It's not like you actually have to physically do something. Although that helps. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that I got very into health and fitness. And that that aided me in my journey away from sin. How's that for pretentious? That aided me in my journey away from sin. You know, but really, I feel that all of that coincided. And this book even goes into that, which shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and it, Actually, the, the very next question after this, that one I just read is... Napoleon Hill asks the devil, name some of the common forms of sin. The devil says, it is a sin to overeat because that leads to ill health and misery. It is a sin to overindulge in sex because that breaks down one's willpower and leads to the habit of drifting. It is a sin to permit one's mind to be dominated by negative thoughts of envy, greed, fear, hatred, intolerance, vanity, self-pity, and discouragement, because these states of mind lead to the habit of drifting. It is a sin to cheat, lie, and steal, because these habits destroy self-respect, subdue one's conscience, and lead to unhappiness. It is a sin to remain in ignorance, because that leads to poverty and loss of self-reliance. It is a sin to accept from life anything one does not want because that indicates an unpardonable neglect to use the mind. 
But, you know, it, it talks in this about that, about the physical side of this stuff. Where physical health, I mean, there's a part that's wonderful where he just goes on and on about the sewer of your body. Here it is. Um, Napoleon Hill asks, Your viewpoint is both interesting and educational. Describe the details through which I may understand how and under what circumstances people overfeed the appetites. And the devil says, Take the desire for physical food, for example. The majority of people are so weak and self-disciplined, they fill their stomachs with combinations of rich food, which please the taste, but overwork the organs of digestion and elimination. They pour into their stomachs both quantity and combinations of food which the body chemist can dispose of only by converting the food into deadly toxic poisons. These poisons clog and stagnate the body sewer system until it slows down in its work of elimination of waste matter. After a while, the sewer system stops working altogether, and the victim has what he calls, quote-unquote, constipation. By that time, he is ready for the hospital. Auto-intoxication, or body sewer poisoning, takes the machinery of the brain and rolls it into something resembling a wad of putty. The victim then becomes sluggish in his physical movements and mentally irritable and fussy. If he, if he could only take one good look at and one bad smell of his sewer system, he would be ashamed to look himself in the face. City sewers are not the pleasantest of places when they become overloaded or clogged, but they are clean and sweet compared with the intestinal sewer when it has been overloaded or clogged. This is not a pretty story to be associated with the pleasant and necessary act of eating, but that is where it belongs because overeating and wrong food combinations are the evils which cause auto-intoxication. People who eat wisely and keep their body sewers clean handicap me because a clean body sewer generally means a sound body and a brain that functions properly. Imagine, if your imagination can be stretched that far, how any human being could move with definiteness of purpose with his body sewer filled with enough poison to kill a hundred people if it were injected into their bloodstream directly. So that's the devil. That was the devil telling you about your own body sewer system. And, you know, one of these devotees of scientism would say, well, that's not exactly how the digestive system works. That's not exactly how the digestive system works. Uh, studies show, and it's like, go do something else with your studies. Go do something else, you know, because uh, that was it. The devil knows the mind and body connection better than just about anybody. And the reason why overeating or eating poorly, making poor choices of what goes into your body, the reason why that contributes to sin is, be, is, is not, you know, not just because it's gluttonous, not just because the Ten Commandments caution you to avoid gluttony, but it's also because it, it corrupts your mind. For example, when I meditate... I generally do it on a relatively empty stomach. I mean, when I do it in the morning, it's before I've had breakfast. And it works out well with intermittent fasting where, you know, it gives you a little more time. It's, some, it's something else to fill a little bit more time with. And, of course, I don't think of it as a time filler. And there are times where it's a real chore. But I meditate either on an empty stomach or if I do it later in the day, I do it, you know, not right after I've eaten a heavy meal Although that's worth doing, it's worth trying. 
I recommend if you're ever into meditation or prayer or anything like that, I recommend trying it on a full stomach because it sucks. <laughs> you really understand that. You really understand why there is religious fasting, for example. You understand why Muslims fast for Ramadan during this intense period of prayer and devotion. You understand why fasting goes along with that. It's not some sort of punitive measure. It's not self-torture. There is a mental, spiritual side of it, you know, and, it, and it's hard to explain if you don't feel it, but it's not a coincidence that my own unhappiness, my own commitment to manifesting negative outcomes coincided with eating extremely poorly and drinking and all of these things that did poison my body sewer system. And scientists haven't completely figured that out. Scientists haven't completely figured out how your body sewer system works. The devil has, though. The devil knows all about it, as you just heard. And uh, I don't know. It just, it just comes back to me to clearing your mind. And your mind cannot be clear if you are making poor dietary choices. Some people might be able to do it. There are some people who eat whatever they want and do whatever they want, and they manage to be very happy and free of sin. So it's, it's not, I'm not saying this is absolute, but it's one thing you can do. It's a very practical thing you can do. And if you're not having success in other avenues, it's something you can try. And who knew that the end of this episode would just me, be me saying, watch what you eat. There's a mind-body connection, which many people know about. But just knowing about it doesn't mean that you're going to do anything about it. But hey, it comes back to noticing again. Because I think that's one of the keys to maintaining a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy physical lifestyle, is that you make these decisions and you could do it as an experiment. For me, it was an experiment. I'm going to try not eating this and I'm going to try eating this. I'm going to try doing this. Intermittent fasting. That was something a couple years ago I... I'm just going to try it. I'm going to do a little experiment and see how I feel. But when you do a little experiment involving your physical health, what you have to remember to do is notice it. You have to notice what is happening to you. If you decide to start eating healthy and you're not paying attention to how you feel and you're distracted by all kinds of other things, you're not going to internalize the process that is happening to you. You're not going to manifest the positive results that you are aiming for by making this decision to be healthier, to eat healthier. So you have to be ready to notice those things as they happen. Otherwise, you're not really getting what you want out of it. In order to manifest a healthy lifestyle, you have to notice yourself feeling healthier. And not just physically, but the way that you are thinking. And so I can't imagine being a faithful person, however you want to define faith, I can't imagine being a faithful person, a happy person, more or less. I think I am happy. I actually think I'm happy. You know, not to pull some sort of job where it's like, life is great, and then God strikes me down, you know, makes my life difficult. But, you know, I do think that I, I have found a certain happiness in recent years in part because I wasn't seeking happiness. I was just looking for a blank slate. I was just looking for a certain neutrality. But I think one of the reasons for myself, this is my testimonial, 
I think one of the reasons why I've been able to maintain what I've been able to maintain and why I've been able to head in a certain direction where I believe I am happy. I believe I've done a good job escaping most sin. I believe in large part it's because I noticed the good. It's, it's because I've noticed the good that is manifested as a result of making certain decisions, mentally, physically, I don't think that the spiritual component is as much a decision-making process as much as it is a certain surrender to not fight those things as they come to you, to not fight those glimpses of gnosis, to not reject synchronicity when it communicates the interconnected wholeness of this life, you know, to not reject those things is a large part to me of spirituality because those things are there already. Those things are already there and you just have to notice them and not fight them. Because so much of it comes down to why are you fighting this thing? These things are coming to you and you, for some intellectual reason, are fighting them? You know, why fight them at all is, is what I would say. There's plenty of other things to fight about. So why fight these things that are simply coming to you? So it's noticing all around the board. Manifestation is noticing not just when things seem to come to you separately from you. It's not just the things that seem to be beyond you that communicate something to you that inform you in some way. It's, it's not simply noticing that, but it's also noticing the things that you do have direct control over. It's noticing the things that you put in your body and when you feel a certain way as a result, noticing that you feel that way. Because when you notice that you feel that way, you will want to maintain that discipline. And the mental side of it is just as true. When you notice that you are thinking a certain way, when your mental awareness has a certain relationship with your surroundings as a result of a commitment to something, as a result of some kind of mental discipline, that will reinforce that discipline. And all of the disciplines in your life are interlocking. Every discipline that you have and that you can maintain will support any other discipline you have in your life. They're completely interlocking. So the more of that you can maintain and develop and cultivate, the better. The more of that you can manifest. But the key is to noticing it and not becoming preoccupied with it to the point where you're, oh, I gotta, I gotta notice every little thing I do. I gotta notice every little thing I do in life or else I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna reinforce the disciplines. No, you don't, you know, no, you don't need to notice every little thing. It doesn't need to be obsessive. You just have to be aware of it and then move on and then do something with it. Become aware of it, then do something with it. So that's manifestation to me in a nutshell. Noticing it, you know, having something, maybe having some sort of preconceived notion of what you want or what could happen, noticing it when you do become aware of it, and then simply doing something with that. Something that you want to do that makes your life better, that makes the world around you better. 
because I don't know what else you can do. You know, you know, and it sounds grandiose, and maybe it is, but it's also incredibly humbling. It's also incredibly humbling. And that, <clears throat> that to me is another side of manifestation, which maybe I'll go into another time because I don't think I'm done with this topic. But the other side of manifestation is it sounds grandiose, but it's also incredibly humbling, a humbling manifestation. And all it comes down to, in my opinion, is noticing when it happens. Noticing something is itself pure manifestation. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.